Hello and welcome to another episode of the Unfinished Cubby podcast where we talk about life balance and life in inspirations and aspirations. With me today is my old, as in not old in age, but old in having known each other, which comes with age two, friend Michael Pascoe. He's the uh, managing director and founder of Olica, which is a consulting uh, company in based in Melbourne, active around the world and in Australia. Olica was purchased by Accenture last year, and I had the idea that we could have a conversation about the journey of going from startup to purchase by the one of, if not the world's largest consulting company in, in just 10 years. Um, and if you could share, we'll have a conversation where there's um, some of your learnings can be shared with, with listeners. So welcome, Michael, for, welcome to the Unfinished Cubby. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Um, good to lay down some of our conversation uh, in digital recording, <laughs> uh, get it out there. Because I always think that our conversations are pretty interesting and other people would like to listen to them. I'm not sure if it is true, but we'll find out, I suppose. Um, and, and, and we like to say that we were acquired by, by, uh, by Accenture rather than what, purchased by... What did I say? Purchased. Oh, okay. All right. Acquired. I mean, you know, yeah. same thing. No. I, I, I thought I, um, I didn't say like sold out. That was... <laughs> um, <laughs> Some kind of middle ground terminology. Um, cool. Yeah, no, totally. We, we, um, I love the conversations that we have and, and, and the flow that they have around them and stuff like that. And um, so I hope that we can um, have a conversation here recorded like our last one about this. Um, I guess I want to start with, at the beginning, what was, what, what was the origin of Olica? Where, where, where did it come from? Yeah, okay. So, I, and just to put a little more, you know, context in place, we're a, uh, an IT yeah. consulting organisation. Um, systems integrator is, is actually the category that we're in. And so we help large companies, enterprise organisations, um, to uplift or modernise a part of their... IT systems, you know, our work happens to be around um, workplace systems and cloud. I know that's broad, but I think it's enough for now. Um, and, and usually we work in a, on a project basis, but, but the kind of work we do, it's broad enough that there's enough work, you know, generally speaking, that we can do multiple projects for, for customers over time, you know. Um, but I just distinguish that, I suppose, from some other managed services kinds of um, work. Yeah. Just um, to kind of um, uh, clarify, so the, the, the kinds of customers that you have, uh, they're, they're mostly medium size enterprise Basically. Yeah, so at, at Olica, we probably worked with organisations that were somewhere between the size of around 800 staff to maybe about 10,000 staff. Um, and, and generally speaking, about the one to 2,000 staff was a really great sweet spot there where we found the bureaucracy wasn't too um, 
too difficult to navigate, um, but they were big enough that they had enough problems that we could, you know, they needed expertise, uh, specialised expertise to solve, and they had enough budget to pay for those expertise as well. Um, but I suppose in, in in Accenture framing, now that we're part of Accenture, the client base is 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 a little bit bigger than that in in terms of the sizes of the organisations. Um, but we can get to that. Um, I think when we started the the company, you know, we'd we'd worked the founders, uh, and there was four co-founders. You know, we we had all worked together actually at one other company at the same time, um, but we'd all been working for I don't know, probably about fifteen years um, or, or more in IT, um, in in either similar roles or adjacent roles, and we felt in that organization that we had learned a lot and we had achieved a lot but we felt we could do a little bit more and we weren't quite empowered or enabled to do that there um and and there's lots of reasons for that and i'm not um you know criticizing that necessarily it's just that we felt a desire that if we had a little more control and freedom, we could bring to, to life some of the aspirations and ideas that we had. And when we started, we really wanted to make a place that others that felt that way could, could, could work with, you know, like-minded folk. And if we fostered their, um, you know, best ideas and really ensured that we were encouraging and allowing and, and you know, empowering i suppose you know them then then we could probably do something pretty great you know with our leadership but also finding the the people that that match and and um were like us i suppose that was our initial thought it's developed a little bit you know obviously since then and i think maybe one of the main things we thought at the beginning was we need to find people like us and i think over time we started to realize that we need a bit of that, but we need uh, a fair bit of people that aren't exactly like us as well. Um, that's probably a big, a big important learning over the journey. Um, but that that was the that was the intent, you know, kind of do what we were already doing, just do it to higher standards, and you know, really let ourselves um, um, explore the ideas that we had and see if we could could actually do things a little bit differently and a little bit better than what was being offered out to, to customers in the market at the time. I actually remember you um, trying to internally in the organisation that you were at sort of effect change for a while and kind of, this is my memory of it, I don't know if this is true for your narrative too, but kind of reached a breaking point of when oh, we, we can't do this here, we'll do it ourselves. Yeah, I think it was the catalyst. Um, and we were, we were pretty passionate and dedicated and hardworking. Um, but when you kind of get artificially blocked a few times and you don't understand it, um, then it, it becomes frustrating. And you kind of either need to, to decide that you're just going to live with that. Um, I mean, you know, for a while you can decide to keep trying, but eventually if it's not working, you, you probably either need to make peace with it or move on and and we thought well there's a few good ideas brewing here um let's see what we can do with them you know mm. what what do you think because that 
that's not an uncommon thing. Often certain organizations, whether they reach a certain size or in, in certain sectors, you see more of it, like perhaps in education and government where the bureaucracy is just so great that uh, innovation becomes impossible. Mm. Um, I, think we see less of that now i think like the world is such that you those kind of organizations aren't able to just continue on their size um uh, do you have any other any reflections on what yeah well that was my first thought when you were when you were introducing that kind of concept now going you know this was 10 years ago right yeah. and um time is a funny thing 10 years isn't that long ago but also it's you know a very long time ago. Um, and I think we definitely have seen many, many organizations change, you know, digital transformation and advances in, you know, technology and cloud services has been part of that. But I think that there's been a, a whole lot of cultural change and um, shifts in, in um, workplaces in that time as well. And I mean, I, I guess it's nothing new particularly, but um, I, I do, well, sorry, the fact that there's cultural change is probably nothing new, but the acceleration of technology change has been um, greater than, you know, the past. Um, but I, I think that lots of organisations are very aware of the fact that those hierarchical command and control models don't work well for innovation and to take advantage of, um, you know, a lot of the technology advancements and aren't going, you know, in that command control model, they're not going to um, deliver the, the disruption and change that is really probably needed in their market and for their customers. Um, and so, you know, if we were talking on this podcast 10 years ago, we probably would have been heavily talking about those startup disruptors. And I know that they're still they're agitating, but I do think that many of the incumbents have started to get much better at, at building um, cultural change into the organisation and building those teams that are able to look at problems through different lenses and empowering them to move faster and, and cut through some of that um, bureaucracy. Obviously, it's still not completely there yet, but it is different. And, and you know, even this point, to be honest, um, we're, we're a small company, we're 50 people, right? And we've been purchased by a company that's, um, I think last count I saw was 570,000 people worldwide. So it's um, a pretty massive company. And when people think of companies like Accenture, um, you, you automatically think about some of those hierarchical, um, bureaucratic kind of assumptions that are going to go into companies like that. And to some extent, I think that there needs to be mechanics that are aligned to that because you've got to actually have stability um, and, you know, financial growth and you need assurance. And that's good for everybody, right? Like knowing that the company is reliable and it's not going to, you know, um, peak and trough um, means that share prices are even, which means um, investors and advisors, you know, recommend investment into it, which means that there's company growth. Employees know that it's a stable job. Customers know that they're a reliable organisation. Like these things are actually really important to then, you know, 
give you the right, you know, the, all that stuff's almost Horizon 1 stuff, giving you the right then to actually go and invest into Horizon 2 and 3 kind of initiatives with, that may feel more, you know, futuristic and more exciting. But if you don't have that stable base, um, you, 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 um, you kind of don't have that right. So when, when we were, you know, considering and, 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 and then ultimately, you know, joining um, Accenture, we learned a lot about the journey that they've been on and continue to be on to actually um, make such a large organisation more agile to, um, to distribute uh, leadership and um, empower people in, at all levels. Yeah. And, and, and it's been interesting. And I think, um, yeah, I, maybe, maybe without kind of keeping going down this path, you know, entirely, because I probably could talk a whole podcast just about that, that aspect. But yeah, cool. I think it's um, been quite eye-opening and um, I think it's been really um, part of the success is that they, they have a desire and an understanding that what customers need to do in this age, especially to take advantage of the technology advancements, is, is that they do need to change the way that they work and how they structure their teams. And mm. they, they, they're aware that they need to be the leaders there. They need to already be doing it before sure. they get the right to consult to clients about sure. it. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool. I Because um, I was working for Consensus a couple of years ago, and that was this very radical, non-hierarchical, um, was like self-organizing and um, it was really wonderful at a certain size and then it kind of grew with with no structure and um, really didn't work really for, for a, a variety of reasons and um, I spoke to someone and I, don't, I can't remember a friend of mine started with it was either Accenture also or Deloitte and um, I was talking with him and the job was so wonderful, like really good employee benefits and, and just, and, and care of the employees as well. But role was really clearly defined and um, yeah, I, I, you're right. There could be an entire podcast just about this, but um, yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, striking a balance is, is the difficult but important thing, you know, and yeah. Um, when you're starting up, you, you get to define what that balance is for your organization. In fact, the word balance was used a whole lot when we were first um, brainstorming what was important to us and how we were going to, you know, act and, and present ourselves to, to customers. It just kept coming up so often saying we, we, we want things like, um, you know, reliable and, and organized and clear project management because we need to ensure that customers, you know, will trust that we can execute reliably, but we need to show that we're also flexible and agile as well. Um, and, you know, I think sometimes when you look at some new smaller organizations, they easily can look like 
all the attractive things in that in that sense of um, they'll bend and shape and stretch to what mm-hmm. a customer needs. Yeah. But do they have the governance, the reliability, the financial stability? You know, um, will they? Will they? Are they? Are they fit and able to continue to grow? Um, you know, all these kinds of things are important when when customers and especially enterprise organizations are making decisions about vendors to work with. Um, so, so we were conscious of that and we use the word balance a, a whole lot. And I think it's, it's, it's super important, you know, in, in that context, we we're just talking about. Um, but the, the other word we used a lot was the word different because we, we definitely felt like we, we wanted to, to be that. Um, in fact, the word Olika came from, um, the Swedish word um, th- different, which is uh, spelt um, O-L-I-K-A and we added another A to be more different um, and better with Google searches, etc. cetera. Um, but that, yeah, I guess that's always been something that's driven us as well to not just, not, 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 you know, do things the way that everyone does them. And, and really early on and all throughout, we've always said, if we need to look at some, you know, why we're doing something, if the answer is because we always have, or that's the way it's done, you know, that's a bad answer. We need, it may still be the right thing to be doing, but we need to understand why we are doing it this way. What are the benefits and, you know, what would be the alternatives so that we had that curious mind and, and strive for continual innovation all, all through the journey. Yeah. I don't know. When you started out, did you imagine that you would be here in 10 years? What what kind of vision did you have, the four of you, for where it was going to go? Yeah, it's a good question. I think I think we were lacking a bit of endpoint, you know, destination um, kind of drive and um, and goal, to be honest. It was something that a lot of people would talk to us about in, in an advisor kind of capacity. And we didn't really ever have good answers for, um, I was always comfortable with that because I am pretty comfortable with change. And I think that you want to learn from experiences and kind of, you know, take that and, and, and adapt. But I I do think that some of my co-founders definitely had, a strong idea that this was, you know, you know, that financial outcomes were probably important to, to them in, in the journey. Um, I kind of assumed that some good financial outcomes would come, but the things that were driving me were, you know, more about the workplace we were building and the, and the kind of quality of solutions that we were going to be delivering. And, and then I just assumed uh, possibly a little naively, to be honest, um, that if we focus on that, the right things will come, but learn along the way that you do need a, a much stronger focus on some of the financials um, in the journey. Yeah. What about, what about your first year? Did it look like what you imagined? So I think the first, you know, so, so four of us started and, and we all had um, 
you know, we were practitioners. We could do, we could do the work. We could sell some work and some were better at selling than others and we could deliver some work. So, um, you know, a lot of people assumed when they saw a startup that it was a bit of a, um, a group contracting banner. You know, we, we'd all do some contracting under this kind of entity. Maybe you'd bring, you'd find that you had a bit too much work on. So you bring on a couple of people. For us, that was never the intention. And we were very clear with that from the beginning that this isn't just, um, you know, kind of a, an entity that we want to do a bit of work under and maybe grow to a couple of people. We wanted it to be bigger, not huge, you know, but, um, you know, we, I think we probably were starting to think maybe 20, 30 people, something like that when we started. And we only got to 50. We were very small still. Um, but I think the first year um, went very well. Like we, we had a um, generally you know, enough relationships. And, and by the way, we really stayed well away from the work that um, the, the, the customers that, um, uh, that we'd been working for um, in the organisation we came from. We, we really, it was important to us to distance ourselves from them. Um, and we felt it was ethically the right thing to kind of just not try to poach any customers and stuff like that as well. Um, but you have relationships with people, people move around. Um, we, we drew on those relationships and we had plenty of work and, and we were doing some, some good projects um, and we had very little overhead. So things were very easy and successful in the first, um, you know, year or so. And, and probably even two years, you know, I think within maybe six months, we, we hired our first employee um, and then, you know, uh, another another three or four in the next six months or so. Um, and overheads were pretty low still, lots of work. But I think what happened over time was you start to, you, you, you have wins, you have more work, you hire more people, um, but then uh, you start to then realise that there's more mouths to feed. Like these people, it's all good when, when, when the work is just flowing, but if there's dips and people start to be on the bench, then how, how resilient are you for that? How well have you prepared for it? Yeah. Um, and in a cash flow sense, um, it, you know, in professional services anyway, you know, there's always about a three month lead time that you're paying your people before you're really seeing the money from the work that they did coming in the door. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah, which starts to put pressure on you as you grow um, because you've always got that lead time. But then also if you do have a dip in work and people on the bench, um, it, it starts to really change the dynamics. And I think that's where it started to, as we started to realise that and go, oh, so some of those theoretical models and spreadsheets actually are missing a few practical elements that we need to be considering here. Yeah. Um, and how many staff are you at at that stage? Oh, I'm not sure. I think we were probably about um, 10, 10, 12 staff, oh, something no. like okay. that. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, th th there's, I don't know the numbers, but, you know, we learned that apparently in many organisations, you know, there's, there's kind of good steps of growth and, you know, you burst kind of that size and then you need to kind of... Um, uh, do some some element of inward um, thinking, whether it's reorganisation of 
tools or systems or just take a break for a second, get everything humming and kind of go through another growth burst. Um, and I, I guess we, we found that along the way. But one of the things that I think early in those kinds of era that, that we realised um, or that really changed the course for us is a partner that we were working with um, said to us, listen, guys, you are a great delivery organisation. Like, we love working with you. You're really awesome. If only you were a great sales organisation as well. Um, and I think that that's probably the what, what triggered us to go, okay, yeah, if we are going to be, if we're going to have some more growth and we want to have the, the real stability in the work coming, we do need to treat sales as a really legitimate function. Um, and none of us were, had a sales background. I guess we all started with technical and IT you know, backgrounds. I think you see a lot of organizations, smaller companies start with um, a tech person and a salesperson. Mm. Um, and, and that creates a different dynamic. It's got advantages, but I think it does have some disadvantages, but we never had that. We had tech people, a couple of us, um, probably me excluded, but a couple of the others were pretty good at selling. But, but you um, grew to like 10 staff before having any active marketing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah look, we might've even been bigger than that by the time we, we, we set out to hire sales people, but, um, you know, we had a lot, a, we, we made a lot of mistakes with, with people that were hiring um, around sales. And I think that wherever you're needing to hire people that are outside of your expertise, you're just on the back foot, right? You don't, yeah. when you're hiring people that are much closer to what you know, you know how to assess those people, you know the interview questions, you know what to do yourself so you can mm. ask them how they would handle it. I think when we were starting to hire people outside of our domain expertise, it really showed the weaknesses that we had in those domains and, you know, the need for people that have greater expertise in those areas, but we didn't know how to, how to assess the right people. And you chose to hire internally rather than look at um, partnering with the, what, what was the um, reasoning behind that choice? Look, it was always intentional that we would we would build skill inside the org, build knowledge and IP relationships and connection inside because we didn't want to invest in anything and then have that kind of not in our control or, or so easily kind of m people moving on. I know I know employees can leave, but we wanted to build a sense of togetherness that we're all truly in it together with the same purpose and mission. And I always strongly, strongly felt that people need to be um, employees, permanent employees um, with a very committed relationship into the business. And that's what we would look for in people when we were hiring, you know, one of the things um, that put certain constraints on you. Um, but I felt in the long run that was going to be the, the, the better thing to do. And I, I feel that for the most part, 
that that was the right decision. Um, but it does make it hard when you when you're then committing to some of those roles, especially when you maybe aren't sure that you've got enough work for them um, or if they will be successful, you know, in a sales role, let's say. Um, same kinds of things that kind of grew into marketing and then, you know, um, financial controller roles and and all, all these things as you're kind of going, I think I'm going to need it, but we don't need someone full-time. How do you kind of stretch to bring them on in a full-time capacity? You may find some along the way that are, that are looking for a part-time, but then of course you're wanting to know that as you grow, that they are willing to grow their hours as well. So it's a difficult balance. So I think for the most part, we would take people that were looking for full-time work, even if we didn't have it, because we knew that that's where we needed to get them to. We needed to grow to that. Um, yeah, I think uh, I've lost my train of thought now. I wanted to ask, what did you learn about uh, as a techie hiring salespeople? Yeah. Um, I, I think I learned that a lot, a lot of sales out there in the world and you know certainly in the it services industry um don't have haven't needed to be very 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 well connected with the delivery part of the organization and this probably isn't you know mind-blowing news um a lot of a lot of projects are sold by one team and delivered by another, you mm -hmm. know? Um, but I think that because of that real um, industry disconnect between those functions and, you know, there's lots of reasons why that happens in many organizations. And a lot of them, I, th I feel like it's almost the natural momentum is that those teams will drift apart. I'm not saying it's right, but, it, but almost if you do, if you don't take, um, specific intentional action to ensure that they don't, then, then they kind of almost do just drift apart. And I think a lot of professionals, IT services, salespeople have come from many environments where they haven't been forced to be strongly connected with delivery. And I think when we hired them, we expected them to be. You know, we just, we needed them to be totally in sync and working as one team. And, have and I think knowledge, is that what, what we mean? then needed them to do was to be a very, very strong team player. And what we found was a lot of successful salespeople had been used to operating more independently. They were, they were very confident people, very um, capable people, um, but usually extremely driven and focused. And, and if you say, this is what I want, I want these outcomes, I want these sales, they could put their mind to it and achieve it, but they kind of a little bit blinkered along the way. And we said, well, this is what we want, but we also need you to do these other 20 things along the way and you can't be blinkered and you need to consider this and to consider that. And we needed high EQ people um, 
that were willing to compromise on a couple of their personal objectives in, in order for the greater good, but also still achieve, you know, certain sales results as well. And so we were asking a lot that, that didn't always, you know, sometimes they conflicted a little bit with each other. Now, those people are out there and we ended up finding um, a number of them over time, but we found a lot of people that weren't that, you know, people that were successful sellers in other organisations, but when we wanted them to have a, a much stronger team focus, we kind of took their mojo away from their selling ability. Yeah, okay. And um, is that like just about culture then having them integrated or um, were there some things that like having the disconnect between sales and delivery that meant you weren't able to deliver as well or, or there were was uh, miscommunication with clients or yeah it's I think with any you know relationship and human interactions there there's layers right and there's there's yeah com complexities and I don't know that I'm able to completely articulate it in a summary form but I think what what we were missing in those stages was real clarity on what we stood for as mm. as a team um, mm. and what we what our mission really was or our yeah. our purpose yeah so um, you were kind of figuring that out but also you did have a sense of it and you knew when someone wasn't a fit yeah i think that's right we had a sense of it but but we could never quite articulate it entire, entirely, which means there was different versions of it floating mm -hmm. around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we didn't quite have, because we didn't have clarity on that, it was hard to make assessments of people, you know, coming into the organisation in a consistent, clear way. And it was hard to um, assess and, and guide and, you know, congratulate or promote behaviors that did fit and address behaviors that didn't fit because we weren't hundred percent clear about the behaviors that were commonly accepted in the mm -hmm. team. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this is where we saw some difficult times, you know, we'd had a generally technical driven, high quality delivery standards, great people, really, really awesome delivery folk, knew their stuff, good consultants that had driven a lot of sales. Um, and then when we needed to become more stable and reliable, we needed a better steady income stream of sales. So we tried to bring in salespeople. Then you bring in salespeople that work and they need a lot of pre-sales support in engineering. So that takes those, you know, really great consultants a bit away from delivery as they're helping to sell well, which is a good thing because they're selling the right stuff, but it just starts to kind of put them a bit more focused in selling. And then those divides between sales and delivery start to come. And we were conscious of it. I was always talking about these teams need to be in sync and working together. But I think, where, where we had that trouble was like, well, well, what is it that we agree between the team that we stand for? How, how are we going to, um, you know, what's our common language to talk to each other? You know, if we feel like, well, I'm working my ass over, over here selling and you're complaining that the thing I sold put all this pressure on you when you're delivering, you know, like how do you bridge that? Because everyone 
felt like they had the best intentions, but then there was some disconnect. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, along the way, by that stage, we're, we're probably 20, 30 people. You know, there's other dynamics starting to play out. You're hiring people that really, you know, aren't the right fit. But because you've got more people, you've, you've got more people to deal with to kind of correct those behaviours or exit them out. Um, there's a couple other, you know, roles that you're starting to look at like you need. Um, finances are getting more and more important. So a lot of pressure kind of starts to mount. And I think we started to see some serious cracks. You know, this was probably maybe like four, five years in. Um, and around that time, we hired a, um, we, we actually hired a, a people and culture manager, my first one. Now, the reason we hired mostly was because we 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 wanted um her to focus on recruitment we we were paying um a fair bit of agency fees to bring people in but then we weren't hiring you know entirely the right people we were realizing that and then we were exiting them and that's something we always did do pretty quickly i think is exit the the, the people that didn't fit because we didn't want them kind of you know creating the wrong culture, but we weren't good enough at kind of picking the right people in the first place. Um, and we we're spending a bit of fees. So we wanted to improve that and, and also um, make it, you know, an in-house function so that our recruitment function really knew our business. And, and I know that's a little bit against what I said earlier about kind of building that, that internal um, thing from the beginning. I think we didn't do that with recruitment. And, and I would say that's a piece of advice and learning that I have had that bring that in as soon as you can, probably earlier than you think you can, because when you get a recruiter who really understands your business and, and, and is in it, they're going to do a better job of articulating that to, um, to, um candidates and they're going to be able to do a better job of really assessing those candidates fit into okay. into your organization um but what what happened then i think was we we we, we hired our our people and culture manager you know because of recruitment but she started to obviously you know influence and and help us with the with the culture and the people was that um, an unexpected to you initiative that she took then that she just brought? Uh, no, look, it's not an unexpected initiative per se, because I mean, we, we, the, the, the trigger was and the way we kind of, you know, paid for the role was because she was going to do recruitment, but we knew that she was going to do the other stuff as well. I just, I just think we didn't realize how much work we needed on the other stuff at yeah. the time. Yeah. yeah. So her, her impact in that other area was probably greater than we imagined. Um, and I think it's because, you know, we were probably a little blind to some of the, the issues that had formed over time. You know, we were still believing that, you know, the, the, the great fun, awesome culture that we had that was collaborative and, you know, in sync with everyone from the early days was still there, where actually the reality is it was starting to, to um, you know, there was friction. There was a lot of friction. Well, that's, I mean, that's hard at that stage. I don't think that's something that just organically can, can be 
after a certain point. After a handful of people, I don't think you, I think you need to be deliberate about that. Um, I'm not sure what my basis for thinking that is, but. I, well, I think you're right. I think we assumed that, that what had worked in the past, we kind of keep doing it and that'll keep, keep happening. But um, our direct, you know, influence wasn't, um, you know, we weren't having many interactions every single day with every single person. It just started to, to you know, reduce um, naturally as you kind of get bigger. I, I, I think, you know, and we spend a lot of time kind of talking about all those really early days, which to be quite honest, I haven't really even thought about for a long, long, long time. Um, and it's probably only right about now that I start to move into the, to the time frame um, that I feel like is is totally core to the to to what we really achieve with Olica, actually, you know, because about this point in our journey, when when we when we did hire a people and culture manager and um, and um, and and one of our other staff members, in fact, our 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 first and and our leader in sales, kind of suggested to the people and culture manager, I reckon we need to be looking at doing some leadership training and some courses to, to kind of improve some of the ways that we're working together. I've worked with this company. I've had one or two interactions with a company in the past. Can you look into them and see if they would fit? And um, that happened. And uh, we ended up working with the organization and it really did set us in that, a different you direction. That was? Yeah. So the company is the, the organization is called Leading Teams. Um, good name. Think, pardon? It's a good name. It is a good name. Yeah. 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 So there, there. I'll just check the URL and do a little plug. No, it's not that. I don't know what it is. Um, Leadingteams.net.au. Um. So their their heritage has actually been um, with elite sport, and they're all about helping high performing teams. Um, well, you know, improve basically, and elite sport team team based elite sport is is probably you know one of the areas that. Um, you, you you know I'm you know me I'm not a sporting person right but <laughs> no that's not an obvious uh, transition into uh, tech teams at all I, I yeah to me it's it's really not but you know as I've learned about what they do and where they come from you know and and even as I've learned a little bit about sport through them um, you know there's there's a lot of mechanics in high performing teams. And if you think in a sporting context, you know, there's a lot of plays that, you know, people work on and there's training regimes and there's medicine and there's fitness and there's diet and, you know, um, you know, lots of things that uh, I'm probably doing an absolutely terrible job of kind of describing all those things. But what I didn't realize, but now that I do it, it's, it's quite obvious. The dynamics of the team are really, really important. So yeah. their model is, uh, you know, because 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 a lot of their success relies on true teamwork, you know, 
And their model around high-performing teams have a common purpose and they recognize that there's mechanics that need to be humming that are aligned to that common purpose, but your dynamics of how you work together needs to also be humming. Yeah. And in their model, as you kind of look deeper into dynamics, they, they really focus on the relationships that you have with your peers and the peers have together. Mm-hmm. When you put purposeful effort into those relationships, you build trust. Yeah. And when you have trust, you're able to have genuine conversations. Um, and, and that includes feedback. Um, but I, I, I guess the point is that when you've really built those relationships and trust, those conversations can be genuine and they can be delivered with care, but also with trust from the receiver that you're giving people that feedback and having that conversation in order to help them improve. Yeah, yeah. And when people know that and believe that, then you build a culture where you're willing to accept, um, you know, uh, feedback from others, all others, you know, that you've built those relationships with at least, you know, hopefully with everyone in the team because you have bought into this model. And you want that. You want to take it on board. You want to understand their perspective. You want them to help you improve. And then, you know, you you don't have to agree with everything they say, but, you know, the, the, the best teams will genuinely, you know, take all of that and try continually to improve themselves and continue to help others improve as well and work together. And I think when we started working with them and we learned some of this and then we further invested into that model and working with them. But, you know, the investments have to come through living it, right? You've got to actually take the time to, to, to have those conversations with people. You've got to invest the time into your relationships with people. When we did this seriously, um, we really did become a high performing organization. We had all the potential before and we were doing a pretty good job, but we weren't truly high performing because we were missing, you know, the, the purposeful work on the dynamics of the org. And um, you're talking about direct personal relationships more than role-based interaction there. Yeah. So it probably, this probably, ties a little bit back to to that earlier conversation we're having about the hierarchical kind of stuff versus the the flatter structure. Um, And I think that in many organisations, you know, if you are working with someone and you're not seeing eye to eye or you think that they're letting you down or not doing the best job that they could do, um, usually someone will have some crack at kind of addressing that. They may not at all, depending on the culture of the organisation and the people's relationships. They may not. What often happens is that, you know, especially if the people uh, report to different managers, they tend to, even though they've got to work together day to day, if they're in different reporting lines, you know, what tends to happen is it goes up the chain and it goes across the chain at some point and it comes back down and then it's addressed. And by that time, it's 
second or third or fourth hand kind of situational information. Um, the context is lost. The time is lost because it's not in the moment. Um, and then there's some trying, you know, some attempt at giving them feedback about how to improve or what to do or do differently. And it, it's often taken as a complaint by the guy next to you that he went up and around and down, but, mm -hmm. but then there was no real, you know, willingness to kind of do that directly and maybe also no sign of willingness to receive that, right? So that creates all kinds of politics problems in mm. organisations, yet it's actually super, super common, you know, that, mm. they, that this is the way that people deal with, um, deal with addressing, you know, differences and, you know, perceived performance issues. So in, in, in highly hierarchical command and control models, um, often that's where the power is, that it has to kind of come downwards. So mm. when people need some change, they, they kind of use their support upward to kind of use their downward power to kind of, you know, make change. Whereas, of course, when you're thinking about a distributed organisation where people feel empowered and safe to do that, then you don't want some of that stuff having to go up and down. You just want it to be shared and, and worked out together. But you need to foster an environment where people feel safe to do that mm -hmm. and where it's commonly accepted to do that. And, and so many places, you know, don't do that. And I think almost the natural way once we kind of assemble into human groups is that you start to go, is, can I say this to this person? Is this okay? Is this accepted in this culture of this group? Sure. You know, whether yeah. it's, yeah, um, a company or an organisation or just kind of social groups or uh, cultural groups, like those, those norms are observed by people. Absolutely. Yeah. And societies, like it within industries as well. Um, looking at um, how lawyers interact and where there's limitations on kind of, yeah, I, I, actually that, that was something I was going to mention or talk to you about, but I, I don't, I, but I certainly remember um, early in my career and I think this is, Probably this is true of anyone, any time, but I think this is m probably much less common, but so frequently feeling um, like unable to bring my authentic self to the workplace. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's probably less common, uh, you know, less commonly felt, at least in tech. Um, yeah. Um, something like in law, I think you, that might be quite common that people would still feel that. Yeah, I think... It, if you go back, you know, 20 years, let's say, I think it's definitely was, was uh, you leave yourself at home and you come to work and you work the way we want you to work and you do it, you know, how we say. And maybe I'm unfair. Maybe it's a little bit longer than 20 years. But, you know, th that certainly had been the, the, the standard. That's how I felt for the early part of my career. Did you, yeah. did you feel like that when you, with some of your... Uh, look, I think that I didn't. And it's interesting as I kind of reflect on that, the team I was in, as I realise and look back, I didn't realise it at the time, was... What about Department of Natural Resources? It, it was a government department, yeah, Natural Resources in Brisbane. And they, 
you know, they were not siloed. They were very open, you know, at in a time where a lot of other departments and, and I think even maybe the common thinking was that you would have a networking team and a server team and a desktop team and, you know, a mail team or whatever, as in like not mails, but like email, although it probably was mostly mail. Um, but, um, you know, where those teams would be focused and kind of, you know, specialized and then, you know, bureaucracy and politics kind of then get in the way. The way that the the manager ran that team at the time, who 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 was a very dynamic and visionary person, actually, I, I now also realize looking back, you know, he ran a flat structure. Um, I mean, there was some hierarchy in it in that there was some senior people and junior people because you needed that in 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 checks and balances and and mentorship and everything. But he ran it quite open and and as someone like myself that was quite interested in a lot of different areas, and I actually quickly realized I was useful in being glued to kind of bring stuff together. And to be honest, that's probably my technical career has been about kind of bringing some infrastructure and desktop stuff together with some software dev, which maybe is the perfect thing for DevOps now, but it wasn't really kind of being done a lot in the past. Um, but, but he fostered that environment, you know, in, in the structure of how they worked so that people could work across boundaries. And I've always felt that I could, I could you know, suggest ideas and, and probably felt psychologically safe, which, you know, now, of course, Google did that big study of, you know, what were the common elements of what made, you know, high-performing teams or, or, or what did common elements that high-performing teams versus their peers um, had in common? And, and you know, it, it wasn't a mix of skills or diversity or, you know, certain degrees or whatever. It was that the team members felt safe. They mm. felt psychologically comfortable to share their ideas, to voice their opinions, mm. to you know, challenge each other. Yeah. Um, and those were the teams that that performed consistently better than other teams. And I think that that's kind of really strongly linked to the core of what we learn with working with leading teams is that we need people to feel comfortable in challenging each other, to saying, you know, these things you did great, these things you need to improve or I felt that the way you handled that situation wasn't very inspirational for these reasons. You know, I felt that behavior I just saw from you wasn't trustworthy for these reasons. Um, and in bringing this to Olika, was this something that um, everyone went through a course of training? So everyone knew what they were doing or was it just the, you know, your top management that then began it and modeled it and spread out to the culture. What's the, yeah. How do you bring good, it to a big it's team? It's a good question. Cause it's hard to, to, to bring to bear, I think. Um, so we, you know, we started with what we, we felt were the leaders in the organization at the time. Um, and we had some people that were, 
um, that that were not on board with what we were doing, and and um, ultimately they exited exited the organisation, um, which 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 is just a great great thing, even though you know in maybe functional roles and 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 hierarchical leadership positions they seemed like they were super important to the to the company um ultimately if they were not going to be on board with what we were doing culturally and willing to to grow in this way um they were not going to be modeling the behavior that we were trying to 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 implement and they needed to go so i think that's one thing that is important to kind of recognize that um and I know it's difficult in a small company when you've got somebody who is um, mechanically or functionally really, really important to the organisation, but actually um, not culturally aligned to or not not behaving in the way that you expect, you know, uh, that you want role modelled, I suppose. Um it can be a, a bit of a difficult or scary kind of thing to address, but it needs to be addressed in some way that, you know, and ultimately with, um, with leading teams, you know, we kind of worked out that you need to, you know, either help that person to improve and, and buy into and align to the, the agreed group behaviours, um, or you need to exit them from the organisation in some form, you know. So, um, I just like this um, whatever the techniques be and we haven't spoken about that too much but like creating promoting this sense of safety and um, is that like is that something that any leader or any person can learn is there a set of techniques there that are um, like NVC or is it uh, something that's specific to your organization you go this is how we're going to do that like like is is this a generic life skill that anyone can get or is it something that's done in a team and you're very specific about what your culture is there and you've got agreements around that or is it a mix of both that yeah I think um, certainly one of the things that a lot of Olica staff have, have told me is that they, through working at Olica and learning, you know, through all the ways that we kind of help people learn this, um, that they've learned things for life in their personal mm. life as well as professional mm. life and that it has changed them. So these things aren't contained to work only and, and they're definitely not, you know, part of what we, what we know is that you're, your outside of work life affects your work life and, and it needs to be considered in the whole thing. And so it's no surprise then that some of the things that you kind of learn then kind of um, impact you elsewhere. So I think in that sense, like um, those things kind of live on some of those learnings and kind of traits or skills that you kind of learn, they live on outside of work. So therefore they're not entirely just about that team at that place in that time together. They're not entirely about that. However, you do 
you do need like remembering that like the whole point of this is a high performing team. So you do need to be acting as a team and, and feel that you are a team and you need a common purpose to drive you together. And then those um, behaviors that, that you want to promote and encourage like, and challenge, they, they need to be agreed in that team. So even though I do think that there's many elements of this that kind of apply outside of the team and in life, the, it's important that that team are clear together about what they stand for. Mm-hmm. And so for our team, you know, we, we, we went through a process, um, you know, as a, as a leadership team, firstly, learning this and improving the, the way that we were working together as, as leaders and, um, you know, learning some of the model, learning some of the techniques of how to do it, kind of almost getting all safe together that we were going to do this with each other, you know, um, and, and, then, and then we started to think about how do we model these behaviours and ways of working to others and how do we start to share what we've learned with them. And then we would periodically have some whole company days where we, you know, facilitated with leading teams. We would, we would, you know, um, kind of t- teach them some of it. But you know, the, the the thing is, it's only just kind of giving them a few of the tools and some of the background where where you really need to make the impact is in the everyday in how it's lived. Sure. Yeah. So it needs to be modelled. One of the things we learnt with that, by the way, is you know, when you kind of think about the leadership team, like who, who is that? So we started with our people that we had in functional leader roles, but leaders have followers. So anyone with followership, you know, you need to recognize that they're a leader in your team or organization. And then you need to kind of start to think, well, if we've agreed that these are their behaviours or, or what we stand for, and these people have followership, how aligned are their behaviours to our agreed behaviours? And by the way, we call them trademarks, um, which I've been using the word behaviours a lot because I wanted to you know, show that it's something that's being lived. But, you know, they're probably more akin to the, the word values, but the problem with values is you stick them up on the wall and you kind of go past them when you're on the way to the toilet or the kitchen or something. And that's about it. But like in lots of organizations, but trademarks, we don't write our trademarks up on walls or whatever. We feel that they should be a mark of the trade. So they should be something that you can see and feel when you're actually in the organization. So therefore there's something that are lived. So therefore they're kind of, they come out in your behaviors, but Sorry, um, can I, I just want to... Yeah. Um, you Two things. One is you were talking about the... Um, I can't remember what you called them, but the I'm going to call them like natural leaders, the people who had followers in your... Followers. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's just purely from their own social charisma kind of thing. You're talking about a, a social thing or, or, a, um, or a not captured in any kind of company hierarchy, but just a natural leader thing where people would is is that what you're talking about like yeah i think um, people that but that others look up to they look to for advice yeah they'll they'll observe for whatever reason you know how they're doing something and go well i'll 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 follow that you know okay so whether it's respect 
core leadership team, then you had to reach out to these people and bring them on board with the. Yeah. So you need to, you need to find those people and you probably already have a sense of who they are. Right. But, you know, have a, have a think about purposefully who, who those people are that have influence. Leaders have influence and they have followers. Yeah. And then, you know, start to kind of, be honest about what kind of influence they're having. And it, and it's always more than one thing, right? There'll be most likely a whole lot of positive influence that you've supported and fostered and enabled, but is all of the influence in line with what you've agreed to be about yeah. and in line with your trademarks or your behaviours? Okay. And I also want to, I want to ask what Olek trademarks are and then i want to ask what the process was of figuring those out i'm really curious to know that so owls are um supportive trustworthy yeah and inspirational cool yeah and and we set these right when we first started working with leading teams and by the way they it's fine and normal for those to have a review you know yeah. At, at, at various points in time to ensure that they still align. Um, but I think that, and I have to admit, I don't completely remember exactly the process, but, you know, we went through um, a group-based exercise where we, you know, in, I think we, we, we were kind of gathered in small groups and collectively, agreed on on some words or behaviors that we felt were important to each of those groups and nominated them into a larger kind of thing and we and we kind of you know deduplicated them and and fleshed them out a little bit more um so that i guess the point is less about the mechanics and more about the fact that everyone in the company at the time had a say in kind of building what we run in the company yeah, I, I, I think so. I think so. Um, I, it, I may be remembering it wrong and it may have been the leadership team at the time. Um, but I think, it, I think it depends whether, you know, how big the company is, how mature they are, what the culture's already like, you know, in, in how you go about it. But I, I think that the idea that everyone has a say and a voice in this, I feel is pretty important. You know, if, if not everybody can be involved, you know, legitimately logistically to kind of make that happen, I think it's important that people, you know, get a chance to kind of understand them and then decide how, how do they, do they, do they align to these Mm -hmm. or not, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and have an honest kind of conversation about that with their people leads about, you know whether they whether they're meaningful to them or not because mm-hmm. if they're not meaningful you know if these trademarks aren't something that they feel and, and and by the way they don't have to be your personal ones like you can have your own personal trademarks and you probably should but they need to be something that you're going to be committed to being as a team to to genuinely um strive to behave like that, challenge mm-hmm. others to behave like that, congratulate others when they do, you know, call it out. Um, if you're not really on board, 
with with it, then it might be a sign that this isn't the place for you. And that's okay. Mm. Yeah. So ideally people have some input to it, but whether they do or don't, and you know, when the outcome comes out, they've either got to be behind them or they've got to not be there. Cool. Have you heard of the term radical candor? Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, um, well, I never really finish any book, but I've read, I've read some, is it, is it Candice, Candice, Candice? I haven't read the book. Yeah. Um, it, uh, it, you know, a lot of the things that we've learned with leading teams and, and that we've enacted in, in Olica align um, in principle to, to radical candor. I think that the key things I kind of take away from that is being, you know, there's a, she, she, she talks about this scenario in, in the book, which is, um, uh, it's the, 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 the statement is it's not mean it's clear. Um, mm. so she gave a little example where a, a person was trying to teach the dog how to cross the road and the, person was using a lot of encouraging and supportive kinds of words with the dog. Um, but also saying, don't cross now, do cross now kind of thing when, when they needed to, but the dog was a little bit confused by it and the person stopped and, you know, quite clearly and, you know, specifically told the dog exactly when to stop in the right tone and quite clearly, and then when to go. And she looked at, looked at the owner and said, it's not mean, it's clear. And I think that that is something that is often um, forgotten, I think, in uh, when you're trying to help people to improve. Mm. As much as in workplaces, there's a lot of disharmony and behind the scenes thoughts or conversations in, in many workplaces about somebody else. People's willingness to actually address that is, is often not super high. And when they do, they're nervous about it. They don't, yeah. they don't know how to do it. And the message is often very confused. Yeah. And having, giving feedback that is clear and timely, I think are, are, are two pretty important aspects. And the, and the third, I think that, you know, I think is in, in, in the radical candor kind of philosophies, but certainly in, in what we have is, is that it's done with care as well yeah, yeah, yeah um but but the care aspect kind of you know it can't come at the cost of being unclear um, well yeah, yeah there's there's being nice and there's being kind as two very distinct kind of things and i think it's very important to be kind but being nice um 
I think I think it's about with the with the intentions of helping someone improve is a is a good kind of yardstick along the way. Like you, your intention isn't to call them out, make them look bad, you know, tell them why you're better or any of that. It's if it's purely to help them improve and it's genuine. Um, but I, I guess the care needs to take in a few other considerations as well, right? Like what's their day like? Is this the right day to, sure. to yeah. address this particular thing? What's yeah. the severity of the thing you need to kind of give feedback on and what's their yeah. current mindset like? Yeah. Some of those conversations, you know, are going to have to start with how are you going? Yeah. You know, you seem a bit stressed. Is everything okay? How's things at home? You know, and, and, and the, the work you've put into your relationship in the background before you need it mm. is, is really important here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that you've built that kind of relationship equity almost so that when you need to draw on it, it's, it's already banked. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I think one practical way to, to kind of get a team doing these things is, is people, funnily enough, I've learned that most people, whilst they feel very uncomfortable giving that, that most people are pretty fine to give, you know, feedback that congratulates someone. You did a great job here, mm. you know. And I'm trying to avoid the words good and bad feedback because just, you know, feedback is feedback. You may take good things or bad things from it. You know, you may look for things that you did that, you know, are promoted and you want to keep doing. You may look for areas and advice for improvement in that feedback. But but the the, the giver of the feedback shouldn't be categorising into good and bad. Um, because as soon as I say, Hey, listen, I've got a bit of feedback for you. You know, it's not the good kind. Or even if I say, I've got some constructive criticism, what do you hear? You hear bad, shit, right? So you straight away, your head's going, this is bad. I'm a bit defensive, you know? Um, so it's best for the person giving the feedback to not categorize and say, these are my observations, you know, this is how I feel. Um, and where was I going with this? The, uh, uh, shit, I've totally forgotten what I was <laughs> That happens, doesn't it? I, I, I think, uh, no, I really don't have it. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. Um, I'm just kind of, I, I was just thinking too, Michael, in terms of time. Yeah. Because um, we've gone for a little while now. Um, do you do you want to kind of how you do you want to kind of wrap up fairly quickly here, or, or go into some more times and areas? Um, I I think um, I think we probably should wrap. Yeah. In, 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 in a few minutes, I've probably just got a little bit I want to mention because I put a few thoughts together about co-founder stuff. And I, oh, yeah, I reckon, yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Even yeah. though that's right at the beginning of the journey for people, I think it actually loops back from this culture and relationship mm. stuff that we've just been talking about yeah, yeah, nicely sure. and yeah. probably wrap it up. 
Um, so, so you asked me before the call um, on an email, you know, you suggested that we might want to talk about, you know, if I've got any thoughts on, on, on choosing a co-founder. Um, and it's not something I'd thought a lot about because, you know, I kind of did that 10 years ago and we had four co-founders and, and, you know, over time it, it kind of turned into just, just two of those four. Um, by the time we kind of, uh, walked to now, I guess. So is, is that, um, also when you did this, um, leading teams process in this transition into culture that the, um, other two left then? No, um, one left about six months in, um, and I think we realized that we weren't really, uh, uh, the, his reasons for, for wanting to start Olica were different to ours. Yeah. Okay. Um, and the other left before actually this, uh, the leading teams kind of pivot and, and learnings, um, pivots, right. not quite the right word, but it, but it almost was pivotal in, in the business, but, yeah. um, um, I, th I think with, with him, he, he was not finding inspiration, uh, anymore, you know, and, 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 and I think his, he, his drive, you know, was, was impassioned kind of wasn't quite there anymore. So he decided to, to move on. Um, and I understand, you know, the reasons like it was a time of where we had lost our way a little bit, yeah, right. you know, and, and much of that was some of the, the, the pressures in the business, um, that, that we've kind of spoke about before. Um, but I think I, you, you know, obviously those events happened along the way, but in, in lots of ways, like, uh, while, while, things are going good and, 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 and your relationship with the co-founder is, is good. Um, you kind of don't think about it a whole lot. Um, but your question made me think about it. And this is what I reckon. I reckon that when you're looking for um, a co-founder, I think it's important that you, that, that between you, however many people it is, that you've got different strengths, but aligned principles. Mm. And I'll probably think a little bit there about some of the learnings we had with sales and delivery as an example, where mm. we found it difficult to find salespeople that were maybe aligned in the principles that we had. But I often see, you know, startups start with a salesperson and a, and a tech person because there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a realisation that they're bringing these really different strengths to the table they've got these different skill sets and that you need technology and, and, and you need sales, you know, mm -hmm. um, or you need some kind of delivery of whatever the, whatever the, you know, core product is, but you also need to be selling that because mm -hmm. these are going to be commercially important elements in, in business. Um, but, but sometimes when those disparate or different disciplines are coming together they're coming together with really different contexts different culture background in those areas of working and some of those areas will will have driven years and years of different kinds of ways of working and possibly different principles that kind of underlie under the under the line those so mm -hmm. i think it's important to kind of 
well, you, you need to talk about what you need to understand what what those principles are for for each other. And it might be something principles? you haven't even necessarily had a lot of thought about what for yourself what your principles are in in terms of articulating them. I um, I, there's something that really interests me: values and principles and and purpose. I I, I spent that's something I struggle with to sort of find that self-knowing. Um, uh, I care about so many things. I've got so many focuses. That's why this podcast ended up being about balance and, and many things. Um, what are your, what are your, I'm asking you personally, what are your principles then that you? Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> there's sometimes I, I think as much as I've said this, I don't know that I can articulate it clearly, but I, I think when when we're in a work context, the principles I've got a I, I like to have a, a longer term view than a short term gain. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. quality is important to me, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't trump every other thing, but mm -hmm. it is important. Like I I believe that you know that 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 it matters. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that we need to do, you know, we need to act in a way that is fair and equitable and honest. And that doesn't always get you all the wins you need in business, actually. Like, like, like not, I, I know that like it would be maybe a brave person to, to say that they disagree and they don't believe in those things, but actually a whole bunch of stuff you see happen in business doesn't fit yeah. those yeah. kinds of principles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there's, there's re like, there's good reasons in, in, I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying I see the, the, the situations that sometimes drive people to kind of act in different ways and if your principles don't stop you from doing that then then people will and so i'm not making any judgment on others whether it's right or wrong i'm just saying that like for me that isn't the kinds of people that i would want to be in business with so you need mm. to ensure that that's true of if 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 for you that's important that that the that they're aligned with others otherwise yeah. you're going to be in conflict situations where your principles yeah. are driving you to different decisions you know and and then you're in disagreement about those decisions but it's not so much about the decision itself it's because of the underlying principles yeah. behind it yeah. How, how do you, how did you come to know your own principles? How did you, or, or, or perhaps, yeah. Is it about seeing them? Do you think, do you think everyone's already got their own principles and it's just um, a process of self-awareness? Yeah. Um, I, I think, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure that I, like, yeah, I think, I, I think maybe what you said is right. Like you probably have them, it's self-awareness of them, willing to, willingness to admit them. I, I feel like it should also be answered a little bit by you, by your gut and not so much of a scientific process. Mm, but, yeah. But I think that, you know, situational 
questions can draw out some of those principles. So a little bit of what if, hey, what if we get into a situation where um, we haven't done something before and the customer needs it, Mm -hmm. that thing, Yeah. what are we going to say to them? Yeah. Just ask each other those kinds of questions. And I think it will draw out kind of where your principal alignments are yeah, or not, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. Cool. That's a good um, one too, actually. It's a very and, real world and and there's heaps of ways yeah, well, to it approach that, lot, none of right? which are right or wrong. Sorry. Yeah, yeah that scenario will happen a lot in, in, mm. in businesses as you're kind of working out your product and market fit mm. as, mm. as you're, you know, you've got something now but you're aspiring to something else. And especially if you work in an, in an area that's got a lot of change, mm. um, how willing are you to say, well, I haven't, but here's the things we have got that are going to set us up to this. Or is it okay to say, you know, to, to sell to your capabilities rather than your experience? Mm. Mm. Um, so, I think as well with, with the relationship with co-founders, you know, people would say to us when we were doing legals and, and stuff, and by the way, just do you do all your legals properly to start with. Like I don't <laughs> yeah. understand why people don't do it. Um, we, and we always, I think because we were never making a little contracting organization that was kind of a thing on the side, we were but fairly serious. About legals, it. you've got to be, you know, you've got to be serious to. Yeah. Yeah. So do your partnership agreements or unit trust agreements or company, you know, whatever they are these days. Yeah. Um, and, and, and go through those processes properly. Like, you know, if you're doing them properly, you should be talking about tag along and drag alongs and stuff like that in, in contracts, because if you, it's if you're not talking to your lawyer about it, then they're probably not asking you the questions to get you thinking about the future scenarios well enough. What's a tag along and a drag along? Oh, like if you were getting bought out or, you know, if someone was wanting to sell their shares and get out of the business, do, do they have to include options to, to, to include your oh. shares in it as well? Or can they just sell theirs and, and to somebody else that you have no say in? Sure. who's buying their share and stuff like that. So, so whether you can tag along to their deal or not. I see. Um, or whether you can force them to be dragged along as well. I, I, I don't have experience in that. Is, that stuff is fairly templated, is it not? Yeah, it is. But, but, but the thing is, what's important about it is that someone's in making sure you, you as founders are having the conversation about oh. it. Yeah. Like what do we think is the right or fair thing? What, what's our agreement here of yeah. how we will handle this? Yeah if you just accept some template kind of wording with it, you may not even understand it. And you certainly probably haven't had the conversation to see if you agree. And then when do you find out, you find out when you're in those situations. So you want to pre prepare for it, pre discuss it. Yeah. And, and I think that you've got to have like the relate. It's my, I brought this up because when we were doing those activities, people and lawyers and accountants were saying to us, you know, oh, this is a relationship, guys. You you got to treat it as that. And you kind of hear those words, but I don't know 
it's hard to it's hard for them to be meaningful to you if you haven't had that kind of relationship before. And for us, it was the first time we were doing a business partnership. And so even though people are saying it's like a relationship or it is a relationship, kind of don't know what that relationship entails. Sure. Yeah. But it is, and it is important mm-hmm. that like like any relationship that's very important in your life that you you know some stuff about the other people yeah and and you know i've kind of written here that you you need you you will need to be open and honest because if you're not then in operational kind of stuff and maybe strategic stuff you'll be dancing around issues um Mm. and 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 you've got to be respectful and considerate of your partners, but you've yeah. also got to be able to actually address issues with them, tell them yeah. what's on your mind. You know, you can't be a dick to each other, but you actually mm. have to, 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 to be clear and honest, which kind of links back to some of those, you know, cultural stuff we're talking about for everyone, but, yeah. but it's got to start there in those co-founder relationships. Yeah. And I think that, you've got to prove to each other early on that you're going to be like that. Yeah. Starting with small stuff. Yeah. And yeah. And these are the same things for a successful romantic relationship or any relationship that has value. Yeah. Um, I think, I think in those romantic relationships, I don't know how you know, but I guess it's maybe a bit more inherent that you're kind of testing each other out. You're kind of giving a bit more, kind of making yourself a bit more vulnerable, kind of seeing what happens. And I think in a business Maybe relationship, a sometimes to do it, like that's part of a um, long, deep genetic courting ritual that just kind of comes unconsciously and naturally. Um, yeah. I don't know. I guess you need to be deliberate about it in a different context. Well, I think in, in, yeah. So if it's coming, naturally in in a romantic sense you know i don't think it is coming naturally in a business sense so you've got to Mm. you've got to realize that and actually put something to it yeah cool thank you that um those uh were all very sensible and good answers um and uh yeah i should have spoken to you a long time ago about a particular business partnership of mine but um yeah and and look let's um we we said we'd we'd kind of wrap up there thank you so much that um and and actually i do appreciate we we went in into that one there a lot of this um uh yeah i i i think it's going to be extremely valuable for um organizations of a certain size um uh, I'm, I'm interested and I think I aimed a lot of my questions there because of where, say, my company's at, which is tiny, you know, one first staff member. Um, and I'm kind of interested in growing from there. Um, or at least interested in talking about that. But um, I don't know if it was so long ago or like it sounds like you just 
launched into amazing flow and success right from the outset there. I'm, I'm interested in what do you think made, this is what I want to finish on. What do you think it was? And give me one, two or three, but like the, the things that made that initial success of the first six months, then the first two years, um, because what is it like 90% of startups fail? Um, what, uh, what do you think gave you that initial success? And then we'll finish up. being in we had a we have a little advantage in in um in in the fact that we work in technology so it's um so it's an area that was in demand and you know generally pay pay pays well right mm -hmm. people pay a lot of money generally but but the type of area of technology we work in didn't require us to build a product before we could start to get revenue because we were selling our services or other people's services. So automatically the, you know, the, the frame of that was easier for us to have successful uh, success in because we didn't have to kind of sink a lot of time, money, effort, and make some bets on what was going to, kind of work in the market before then we could find out yeah mm -hmm. and, and appreciate that in tech land that's not always true of kind of you know software development kind of stuff and um you you knew that market was there of selling those services as well you're already doing that Correct. And you, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and so, so we were already i think you know we were already we were already doing the thing that we were going to do you know we weren't inventing something new we were doing it. We just wanted to do it a little bit better and a little bit differently to others. Yeah. Um, but that could come in the flow of the work. You know, it didn't need huge investments. So we're kind of already just strengths and, you know, capabilities that we already had to kind of do that better. So I think we're really fortunate in that sense that, and, and, and there's a lot of startups that kind of can't rely on all of that you know, same circumstance, yeah, there, yeah, there's yeah. more bets being taken. So it was always a bit of a low risk endeavor for us because we were kind of just doing what our day job was, but together with the intention of um, doing it, uh, 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 growing a company, you know, yeah. so our intention was clear. So I think what did make it successful there though, is that we had really good skill together we had clarity, even though we didn't know everything about what we were going to be and stand for and everything, we had very clear idea that this was a company, not a business, not a contracting yeah. umbrella. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That we were building something bigger than yeah. just yeah. us. Yeah. We knew that right from the beginning and we, and we spoke to customers about that, yeah. you know, yeah. about our plans. And they weren't very quantifiable, but they were at least in that kind of realm. This isn't just a contracting umbrella. Yeah. Um, so we had reasonably experienced, I mean, you know, 14, 15 year kind of experience for people coming together 
with that intention and we could deliver now, but we were also clear that we were going to grow and bring others in that could do more work for people, for, for customers as they needed more from us. Mm-hmm. We also could rely on some credentials from, from our previous works, you know, and we didn't rely on them heavily. They were just in the sense that they were in our individual experiences, but, you know, it did give some credibility to, to, to us. And the yeah. fact that there were four of us together early days doing it, you know, there was existing reputation. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing over those first few years, especially, although, you know, probably really the entire time is that we said no to a lot of work. Yeah. That right. wasn't in our core patch. Wow. So yeah. that's, that's unusual, isn't it? Um, yeah. But you're, you're obviously able to, to. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and, and that's right. Like, you know, it's, somewhat of a privileged position to be able to say no because you know you've got enough work yeah. but sometimes we would still say no even though we weren't 100 percent sure that we had all the work we needed yeah but we felt it was important to be able to be clear with customers what we did do show yeah. them that we were honest and we had lots of feedback early on going oh so great that you've just fronted up and said, you don't do that or you're not good at that rather than yeah. kind of pretending you are and then letting us down later. Yeah. Now I know I can trust you yeah. and I'm going to give you all the work that, that you say yes to. Yeah. 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 Because I know that you will actually do it well. Yeah. 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 You're, going to, you're, you're actually being honest with me and saying no to the stuff you're not going to do yeah. well. And I think that ties in with that. What I was saying about the quality was important to me. So if we weren't going to do it great and we didn't really know it, let's just, say no to that because then we'll get a reputation in the market for, for doing a really good job and being honest and, and transparent with people. Yeah. So those principles played into it and yeah. they had to kind of come out in the way that we actually acted with customers. Yeah. Um, and it takes a bit, bit of conviction in the face of, you know, potentially an uncertain income stream. Yeah. But it did make a big difference in those early days. Cool. Uh, this maybe doesn't fit in here, but I just remembered one question that I wanted to ask you, which was at what point did you as founders stop working, you know, as practitioners in the business and instead work on the business? Yeah. It's, it's also a really good question and probably should have been part of my answer. It does fit because we were conscious that we needed to do that because we were clear that we were building a business that was bigger than us, that we needed to do that as soon as we could. Yeah. 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 And so we staggered that um, across the co-founders where, where it made sense. Um, But, you know, we, we did pretty quickly. And I I think maybe, um, I think maybe we were all not, you know, heavily delivering work anyway within, certainly within a year. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, probably most within six months, mostly. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So- oh, that's maybe not true. Maybe it's a bit longer than six months because as I think about it, employee probably first, yeah. So I'd say, I'd say within the year, you know, once we got employees, um we hired, that's the other thing, I think. We hired really quite senior people first. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, because partly we we just couldn't tolerate a lower standard, so we just needed people that really knew their shit. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but also, and maybe this wasn't as strategic at the time, but as I look back, it sounds like it was. You know, um, that would enable us to kind of move out of those hands-on roles because they yeah, were with sure. people that we knew had the expertise and, and experience to do yeah. it. So, yeah, senior people first. That obviously cost us more money, but it enabled us to kind of make that switch to start to think a little bit, you know, bigger picture, work on selling more, yeah. you know, ourselves. And there was technical sale selling, but, you know, it, it worked for, for a fair bit of time. So, um, yeah, yeah. And that probably was a bit of you know a few things there maybe aren't completely there's a bit of conviction in that kind of process to, yeah. to go say no to work hire some expensive people delegate to them and empower them to do that work so that we could step away because we were clear that we we're building a, a company and we wanted to make a workplace where we we're hiring people into that that could be empowered i guess it all kind of connects into that what and, we're really doing it for you you did have positive cash flow all that time too right you you had the work to do that yeah yeah That's correct it. yeah yeah we did and you know our overheads were low but not none you know we did hire a, an office right from the beginning we didn't yeah, do right. the work from home thing and i know maybe right now as we say this in 2021 with covid and everything you know it just seems ridiculous to even hire an office. But back then, a lot of startups were not. They were doing the work from home thing. But to me, even though it might have been reasonably, it saved them a little bit of money. To me, when I saw that, it never signaled to me that they were serious about building something. Uh, Bricks and mortar represents something in your psyche it, that it's, it, that it's you know, solid. You know, you know, I don't even know that it's, for me, bricks and mortar. It was about like having a place that could build a culture. Like well, you could be sense, in yeah. there and yeah. you would have that FaceTime with people and, yeah. and work each other out. Like, yeah, no, I think that's very fair. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's a good spot to leave it. All right. Unless there's anything else that you wanted to add. Uh, look, no. I've spoken a lot on the <laughs> <laughs> No, that was good. I mean, you had um I've got many more thoughts and things, but I think nothing else that's burning about, you know, about these topics. Cool. And let's um let's talk again in the future. And between now and then, let's just make a note. Maybe we can even share a doc of anything that you do want to specifically share about and anything that I specifically do want to ask about. Um, does that sound all right to you? Sounds sounds like a pretty sensible idea. Cool. Um, all right. And I'll let you enjoy the rest of your day off. Thank you very much for sharing some of it with me. You're welcome, Chris. Great to spend the time with you, actually. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Right. Bye. See you next time. Bye.
I can't hear you. I'm mute. That's why you weren't responding. <laughs> How are you? Hi, good. How are you? Yeah, well, I'm good. How's your dad doing? Mm. Good. Oh, fuck. I forgot to say happy birthday from you. It's all right. <laughs> it's captured here now forever, so. Yeah. Cool. And you're having your first day off in years? Um, well, no, that's not quite true, but um, it's certainly my first kind of little unexpected one day kind of uh, thing off. Yeah. You know, I've had some holidays and stuff, but I haven't tended to take just a day here or there. And I just um, had so much on that I, it was, it was building up and I was just like, you know what? I looked in my diary last night. I was like, Oh shit. There's not very much on tomorrow in, in meetings wise. And to be honest, I could use the catch up time to do some planning and other like non meeting um, stuff, but I think I need the time off more. So I decided that uh, that was best for my well-being and therefore best thing to do for my team. How are you feeling? I'm feeling great. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> yeah. You've got you to gotta have some moments in life, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I've been really, really busy and, and, and pretty exhausted, to be quite honest. Um, so having a little break unexpectedly today is really, really nice. And I'm going to get a little bit of life admin done today so that it doesn't have to be done on the weekend. Mm, nice. Mm. Cool. All right. Do you want to basically jump straight into it? Yeah, I'm happy to. I, I don't know that we've quite um, decided on what we're going to talk about, but I'm happy oh, that's to true. take a bit of, bit of life and twist and turns. Sorry, say that again. I said, I, I don't know that we've 100% decided what we're going to talk about, but I'm happy for it to kind of take some twists and turns along the way. Oh, good, 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 good. You're, uh, well, it's, it's probably the style of your podcast, but also it's probably just the style of our conversations yeah. that we've had before. Yeah, so. yeah. I, I meant to uh, kind of do a tiny bit of um, prep, just look at what we sort of said before. Um, to recap that, to just kind of set an intention, I guess, um, I had come up with some kind of clickbaity kind of appropriate title around from startup to selling to Accenture in 10 years, something like yeah, that. I think, I think you use something nice like the world's biggest consulting company or something exactly. like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 How to, I, I, I think that's an aspect. And one thing that I, you know, has been important to our journey and I feel pretty strongly about is a lot of cultural elements, you know, so I'll probably just naturally talk about some of that stuff. And the other thing you were kind of suggesting was, I think it was a bit of a topic on your mind at the moment was around choosing a co-founder as well. Mm. So I had a little bit of a few thoughts about that as well. Cool. Good to share. Mm. All right. And I think, I think I've got a number of questions. I think I want to um, try and extract out um, some like gems and techniques and um, you know, the, the learnings that you've got 
from your journey for other people to who, who want to do something similar. I think that's yeah. its purpose. Yeah. Cool. Um, all right. So yeah, we'll just, and we can go wherever. So I'm going to do the intro yeah. bit now. <clears throat> Let's get a little bit nervous here. I think cause it's the formal, <laughs> formal moment or something. I don't know. Um, okay. What, it, what's your role? Oh, um, manage it. Well, I was the many. I was okay. the managing director of yeah. Olica, yeah, and I am a managing director at Accenture. Right, right. Um, All right, that's cool. the titles. All right, and I'm going to set the same framing in introducing you as I just kind of said. Then this is what this is about. Yeah, cool, cool. <clears throat> 